You're listening to Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, a podcast dedicated to offering a no gimmicks and ethical approach to building personal wealth and overall adulting with your host, Kristen Atherton, brought to you by Camex LLC. Welcome back, my Avo Toast lovies. Today marks our 10th and final episode of the season. I am so excited to have come this far. It's been a journey for me, especially to get used to the extra work, but I've enjoyed it so greatly, and I hope that you have too. So last episode, we talked about ways to not get scammed by people who want to make you think that you're going to make money when really they're just trying to take your money, and we're steering clear of it, right? So today, as promised, we are learning about what had all the boys' panties in a wad for the last few years. That's right, I'm talking about cryptocurrency. So there are a lot of words to know and a lot of confusion as to what the whole thing is, how it works, and whether it's even safe to be a part of. I will explain the technology behind cryptocurrency and how it works, how crypto got started, what types are out there, and what other little crypto crazes are being talked about. A little bit of how to start investing in crypto if you so choose after listening to this episode. So we've got a lot to go over. It's a pretty hefty topic. So we're just going to dive right in. The year was 1876. Alexander Graham Bell just received the first patent of his novel invention, the telephone. Within two years, the telephone began to catch on. And by 1880, Bell received a 50,000 franc prize from the French government for what they called the Volta Prize. The Volta Prize, or Prevolta, um, which I'm sure I didn't do well in a French accent because I don't know French. It was established by the French Emperor Napoleon III in 1852 as an international award for extraordinary scientific discoveries related to electricity. The first award went to an Italian physicist noted for developing the electric battery, Alessandro Volta, for whom they named all subsequent awards. Now, AGB, that's, you know, Bell, Alexander Graham Bell, he used the prize money to establish his laboratories in Washington, D.C., first naming them Volta Labs after the pre-Volta and its namesake. Eventually, though, Volta Labs was renamed Bell Labs for AGB himself. All right, let's fast forward to 1940. Alan Turing develops the first precursor of the modern-day computer to break the German Enigma encryption device, which allowed Allied forces to accurately predict German troop movements and advances in such a way that led to the successful defeat of Nazi German forces in Europe. You know I love me some history, but we can't stop at this point any longer, unfortunately. If you would like an entertaining way to learn more about Alan Turing and the victory machine he built, I would tell you to check out the 2014 movie, The Imitation Game, on Netflix or wherever you get your movies from. The computer as we know it today was not built by one person. In fact, if you Google the history of computers, what you'll find is a series of people making various discoveries, inventions, and modifications to existing technologies that eventually were compiled into one amazing piece of machinery. There's even several notable women along the way. One as early as the mid-1800s, believe it or not, and she developed an algorithm that essentially made her the very first computer programmer. 
For those of you who are familiar with the poet Lord Byron, who is most noted today for his work Don Juan, this first computer programmer was actually his daughter. Now, I know that history loves to ignore women, particularly in the mid-1800s, but I would like to throw out a little bit of my own speculation on this particular topic. Lord Byron was a known philanderer. He was wandering all over Europe, having affair after affair. And good for him, it was inspiration for all of his works, all of his writing, all of his poetry. But an absent father creates what we would call daddy issues. And I absolutely love watching women turn daddy issues into their strength. She went to school, she became a mathematician, and she became the first computer programmer with no help from her father. Sometimes all it takes for women to be their true, amazing, genius selves is for men to just simply get out of the way. Beyond the amazing first computer programmer being Lord Byron's daughter in the 1800s, the most notable developments on the computer are kind of toward the late 20th century, and they're as follows. In 1958, the first integrated circuit is unveiled, which is what we know in layman's terms as the computer chip. So the very first computer chip was unveiled, and it earned the inventor the Nobel Prize in physics. In 1968, the first prototype of the modern computer, complete with a mouse and a graphical user interface, was introduced. And so a GUI, a graphical user interface, is what we've come to know as the computer screen. So rather than all of us having to learn how to use computer programming languages like Fortran and C to be able to use our computer, they came up with all the graphics, and we can kind of interact using the mouse and everything. So that was first introduced as a prototype in 1968. Pretty cool, actually, if you think about it. In 1969, the Unix operating system is unveiled. And so operating system may be a lot of words, but if you have a Mac or an iPhone or whatever, you know that they have an OS, like, you know, updated OS that's an operating system. So every time you get a new update, it's to the operating system itself. So that operating system that came out in 1969 actually made large-scale networking of device computing systems practical and also the internet. So this operating system was kind of the building block for how we were able to connect multiple computers in a closed network, and then also how we were able to connect multiple computers and devices in an open network like the internet. And that is from Bell Labs, if you remember them, because Alexander Graham Bell, that's his lab. In 1970, Intel had just gotten started and they unveiled their very first dynamic access memory chip, or DRAM. So DRAM was Intel's first product. RAM is the memory on a hard drive, or at least the first generation of it, which is basically the memory storage place for a computer that doesn't involve the cloud these days. 1971, IBM released the first floppy disk. If you are as old as me and were fortunate enough to be around a personal computer as early in your life as I was, or if you're a little bit older, you'll remember the floppy disk. If you're a little bit younger, you may not remember the floppy disk. You may remember the hard disk, and you might have called it a floppy disk, but it was actually smaller, and it was more rigid. And for any of the babies that might be listening today, that save icon that's on your computer is in the shape of a floppy disk or a hard disk. So that save icon isn't just some random weird square looking thing that was come up with arbitrarily. It actually has a place because the floppy disk or the hard disk was a place that we could save files to. 
So we would go save onto the disk, which is why the save icon looks the way it does. In 1972, video games were born. Yep, that's right. That's when Atari came out with Pong. There was actually another one that was in there that was lesser known to me, but both of them came out in 1972. In 1973, Xerox invented the Ethernet cable, which connected multiple computers and other hardware devices. Xerox, as you know today, probably are like printers, scanners, copiers. It would make sense that they need to connect to a computer in order to be able to print something. So they created that Ethernet cable, which connected devices in the office. In 1975, Microsoft was founded, and in 1976, Apple was founded. Now, let's fast forward about five more years, and that is 1981. The first personal computer was released by IBM, and it used MS-DOS as the operating system. In 1983, Apple released the first personal computer that used a graphical user interface. And by 1989, a man named Tim Berners-Lee, who is a British scientist working for CERN, which you may know today as the people who discovered the God particle and they turn on their thing and like all the timelines get switched and stuff. It's like modern day TikTok lore. CERN stands for, in English, it stands for the European Organization for Nuclear Research. So Tim Berners-Lee, again, British scientist, but working for CERN, he submitted his proposal for what would become the World Wide Web, the internet as we know it today. So the paper details his ideas for hypertext markup language, which are the building blocks for the web. So if you didn't catch that as I was stating it, hypertext markup language is HTML. And then for those of you who are too young to know, when you put in a web address and you type in www.whateveritis.com, www stands for World Wide Web. So now we know where all that came from. Basically, I've just walked you through how computers were developed, some of the basis for internet, how all of that was developed, what the timeline was for when that was developed. And the reason I wanted you to know that is because we're about to get into the technology that was developed for cryptocurrency next. And I wanted you to have it in your head kind of what was going on in the world, particularly with regards to the invention and development of computers and the internet at that time. So now, the year is 1991. Two men named Stuart Haber and Scott Stornetta are scientists working at Bellcore, which is a spinoff of the same Bell Labs started by AGB 111 years prior to that. Now, Belcor allowed these two guys to choose their own research project, and Haber thought a problem worth solving was authentication of digital documents. So basically, how could you be sure that the document that you were looking at on a computer had not been modified from the original? It seemed like a simple question that in 2022 we would all take for granted, but remember, the computers in 1991 were simplistic and limited in functionality for everyday use. It's in part because these guys asked this question that we aren't questioning it today. Hell, we can go find and restore previous versions of files today if we need to, in many cases, just on our own personal computers. So we can figure all that out, right? Back then, that wasn't really the case. So they were doing a brain exercise, and I'm going to try to walk you through it. 
they determined that there would always be a need to have an independent person or body to verify the authenticity of a digital document. So think of this like needing a notary. You would take a hard copy up to a notary and you would sign it in front of them and they would stamp it and that would be the notarized copy and that one couldn't be changed. So if you went and tried to make updates to it, it would be kind of like, oh, that was forged. That's obvious that they messed that up, that kind of thing. They wanted to basically create a digital version of that where no one could really change a document after you've set it up or when you do change it, it changes like the properties of the document, right? What they were worried about then was, okay, well, let's say we have one person who can authenticate this document, right? Like you and I are going to enter into a contract and then we have another person who digitally verifies that's a correct document. It's, you know, notarized or whatever, but digitally. But what if that person that like, say you got to verify the authenticity was actually not an independent person? What if that person was colluding with you in order to fake the authenticity of this digital document that I'm supposed to be signing with you or using to work with you? So that was their like big question. They were like, how do we, how do we prove this never got to be a problem? right? How do we notarize it, if you will? So one day, Stornetta was out to dinner with his family and he had an epiphany. In his mind, you have to keep adding independent parties to verify authenticity, right? Because you might pick one person to come in and then I'm going to pick another person. And then like, you know, that other person is going to pick another person. And that way we can make sure like the bigger it gets, the less likelihood of collusion that there would be. And so Ultimately, you would have to keep adding independent parties in order to ensure that there wasn't some level of conspiracy or collusion taking place. And if you really get into it, eventually, you'd have to keep adding it to the point where that number would grow into infinity. The whole world would basically have to be included in order to verify the authenticity. But since there's only a finite number of people on Earth, even the whole world isn't enough to be able to get an infinite authentication verification. This next part, this is where they started to lose me a little bit. I'm not going to lie, but uh, I'll explain it how they put it in the interview and I will read it for you and see if you get lost too. Bear with me. So we're going to try. So they said, if you created a system where all the documents on that system are linked, Everyone would essentially be a witness to each of the document's authenticity. Everybody is like basically verifying everybody else's because they're all linked in a way. Since time is a social construct that everyone in the world has essentially agreed to, the world would be able to validate your document as having existed in a particular form at a particular time. They published their theory in a white paper called How to Timestamp a Digital Document, which you can access in its entirety online. And then they also turned that white paper into working computer code. Now, ultimately, the technology applies a timestamp to the behind-the-scenes data within a document. So not the document itself, not what the end user would see in the graphical user interface, because that could be changed. It could be forward-dated. It could be backdated by the end user. The timestamp is coded into the data that's behind the scenes. So if you're a computer programmer, you could probably find it. I'm sure it's pretty easy for a programmer to find, but for the typical computer user, you won't even see it most of the time. This timestamp code is not just included in the data as like Monday, January 3rd, 2014 at 1523 hours. 
The timestamp is jumbled up into a code that without the key makes no sense. So it's now a coded message and you would need to have what they call the cipher to be capable of deciphering it. The art of jumbling up words and numbers in a way that makes all but the intended recipient capable of understanding the message is called cryptography. So for the creating of this timestamp, they used a randomizer to develop the cipher at a specific interval. All of the documents created during that time that the specific cipher is relevant, it was like roughly a week back when they first developed their company that was built around this technology. All the documents created during the week would have that timestamp using the cipher. So it would be the jumbled up cryptographed version of the date and time. They basically likened it to developing a fingerprint for the document. Okay, so then instead of a document, let's say you have a group of things that they want to use this type of encryption for. You following the way the wording's going? Encrypted, cryptography, encrypted, deciphered, and cipher. Okay, so they use this digital fingerprint encryption technology to code an entire group of stuff, which they call a block. Think of it more like a box, you know, a bunch of stuff gets thrown in there and that's like your one block. Your box is like your one block and all the stuff inside of it is part of the block. The block can be used for anything really, like keeping track of transactions made throughout the week. Now, a quick example would be if you did a bunch of work on, let's say, developing a presentation for your senior management at work one week, you uploaded it to the shared server in one particular folder that you created only for that week's worth of work. So that folder is like your block and the presentation work that you did that's inside of that folder, that's the data stored in that particular block. Okay, so then over the weekend, your coworker Randy comes in and changes the name of the file folder and changes a few things in the presentation. When you get back to work on Monday, you can't find your presentation because the file folder has a different name. So you can't find the file folder. You think it's just absolutely gone. Your work is gone. And your senior management meeting is starting in less than an hour. Now, Randy comes along to where you're sitting around hyperventilating to your boss trying to figure out what happened. And he says to your boss, hey, you know, I went ahead and prepared a presentation for this meeting over the weekend since I know Kristen can be so unreliable sometimes. So you go to the senior management meeting and watch Randy give the presentation, but he's giving your presentation to senior management. That's what happens when your folder is not encrypted. When your block is not encrypted, somebody can come in and change things up and you'll be fucked. Now, what if you had an encryption on that folder? Then it would be really obvious that Randy had been the one to steal your work and try to throw you under the bus. Once the data inside the folder is modified, the name of the folder is changed by the encryption. And so everything about that block becomes corrupted. It can't be verified and Randy can go eat a dick. So now allow me to offer a metaphorical example of the entire blockchain concept. So that was a block, it's like a file folder with shit in it, right? And if you mess up with anything inside of it, the name will get changed and It'll be like, ah, things have changed. This is not right. Imagine now that you are looking at a very elite, humane, cozy place intended solely for the breeding of puppies. Okay, I know, adopt, don't shop. Just roll with me on this metaphor, okay? 
So all the dogs and the puppies are super well fed, super well groomed. They get lots of lovies and snugs and playtime and exercise and they get organic all natural food to keep them happy and healthy. Okay, the, the dogs are like super safe and they're living their best lives, okay? I know dog breeding has a whole other thing going with it, but just work with me on this, okay? Okay. So each mama dog has her own fenced-in area. Let's say it's got both outside and inside so they can play, but also have shelter and food and water and cozy, cushiony sleep areas. Again, super humane, like the most amazing dog retreat place ever you can think of, okay? Okay. So the fences between each mama dog's area are like mesh, okay? But they're like next to each other. Like Each mama dog can like sniff the other side. You know, the mamas and the puppies can sniff the other sides, mama and puppies through the chain, but it's not so open that teeth can get through, right? So everybody's safe. Everybody's like, you know, they know what's next to them smell wise, but they're not like getting in fights or anything, right? Like it's it's a very wonderful place. It's a beautiful place. Okay. We will call these mama dog areas blocks and we will name them for each mama dog. The term is hash in blockchain technical speak, but we don't need to worry about that. Just remember the mama dog name is unique, so that's what we're working with. For now, let's pretend that there are three mama dog sisters that are at this obviously idyllic establishment who are there with their puppies. So Cookie is in the first block with her puppies. Cupcake and her puppies are in the second block. And then Candy is with her puppies in the third block. So Cupcake and her puppies, the middle block, can sniff and interact with both Cookie and Candy's blocks, but Cookie's block doesn't share a fence with Candy's blocks. So they're just three blocks in a row. So that would be a line of blocks or like a chain of blocks. So this is a block chain of puppies and their mamas. And they all have unique little identifiers. Each puppy is slightly different. They're all a little unique, but they all are a part of their mama. So they all have that hash that is associated with that block, which is where they all live. So for the sake of this metaphor, Cookie, Cupcake, and Candy are all AKC certified. And for those who are unfamiliar with dog breeding, AKC stands for American Kennel Club. And it's like the highest level of certification that you can give to dogs in the United States to prove that they're purebreds. Again, I know, like, just roll with me on the metaphor. If a dog is AKC certified, it tends to be able to pull in more money when you sell the puppies. That's kind of like they're purebred. They can compete in the American Kennel Club competitions because they're part of the purebred like group and stuff like that. So there's a lot of stuff that goes along with the reason they do that. It's just, you know, another way to make things, make more money. But let's say that just up the road, there's another establishment that's identical to this one, just amazingly idyllic, but that's where the breeder likes to keep his CKC certified mama dogs and puppies. So that would be like the CKC blockchain. So the breeder decides to get greedy and he thinks he's going to be able to pull a fast one on everybody. He decides to move Cupcake and her puppies into the CKC establishment. And for the sake of this metaphor, because it doesn't quite work for blockchain purposes, but for the sake of this like this particular metaphor, he's still going to be able to get the same amount of money off of Cupcake and her puppies because they're still AKC certified, even though they're being moved to a different establishment, okay? But what he wants to do instead 
is move another mama dog from the CKC establishment, the CKC blockchain. He wants to move that mama dog and her puppies into the AKC blockchain because he wants to pass them off for being AKC certified puppies and make more money. So he makes the switch. He moves the he moves Cupcake and her puppies off to a different block and hopes that people will still believe him that they're AKC certified, but he's got the receipts on them, so that's that's all fine. But then he moves the CKC mama and her puppies into Cupcake's block. And remember, Cupcake was in the middle, okay? So now he put this new mama dog and her puppies in there in Cupcake's block. So that block is no longer Cupcake Block. It's now Angel Block because the mama dog's name is Angel. Next time that Candy, who's in the third block, remember, she goes up to the fence to go have mama dog chats with Cupcake. And she doesn't see Cupcake. She sees Angel. And she realizes that something's wrong because she's supposed to be able to see Cupcake through the fence. And so she starts whining and howling and Then all of her puppies will start whining and howling because they're like, mama's upset. I'm upset too. Something's wrong. Something's not right. And then even though Cookie hasn't seen anything yet, she hears Candy and her puppies whining and howling down the chain. And so she starts whining and howling. And then when she's whining and howling, all of her puppies do too. So now all of the original blocks in the blockchain are sounding the alarm because the block that's next to them isn't what was supposed to be there. It's not the same anymore. When we're talking about blockchain technology, each block can exist in its own microcosm, but if something changes in the block next to it, it will know something is up because that's part of its coding is it's looking for the block ahead of its name. And if that block's name changes because something inside of the block changed, then basically everything after that block that was changed in the chain will be corrupted. And no, don't worry. No doggos or puppies were harmed in the making of this metaphor. So now we have a little bit of an idea of when the blockchain was developed, technologically speaking, theoretically, and then also worked into computer code. So this blockchain technology became the building blocks, if you will. (laughs) No pun intended. I just realized what I said. So it became the building blocks for cryptocurrency. And there had been a few attempts at cryptocurrencies through the 90s, but they really didn't take hold. So fast forward a little bit from 1991 when these guys came up with the blockchain technology. We had the Spice Girls, we had Backstreet Boys, Boys to Men, In Vogue, In Sync, Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, Eminem. We had AOL come out, America Online. CDs came out, and then the rewritable CD or CDRW came out. If uh, you're roughly my age, that was our generation's version of mixtapes. So taking a little, little nostalgic tour right now. In 1997 is when the CDRWs came out. Then we had AOL Instant Messenger, which we called AIM. And I remember putting up all kinds of away messages in college for my AIM screen name. In 2000, USBs came out. At the end of 2001, we had both the collapse of the World Trade Center, followed three months later by the collapse of Enron. 
MySpace came out in 2003, right around the time I was graduating high school, and we all basically ended up learning how to HTML code so that we could make our MySpace pages a lot cooler, we could add music to it, had cool backgrounds. And then Facebook came to my university in 2004. Apple came out with the first iPhone in 2007, right as the housing market collapsed. And I graduated from college, got married, and started my first job in 2008, only to watch oil prices tank later that year. So the Great Recession was upon us, and in the midst of it all, someone, using the pseudonym Satoshi Nakamoto, published a white paper outlining a peer-to-peer -peer financial exchange of electronic cash, essentially cutting out the need for the use of financial institutions. The advent of Bitcoin was, in essence, a way to bypass the financial elites as a response to the fragility of financial institutions, which had just destroyed the global markets the year before. Bitcoin was the first successful attempt at cryptocurrency. Now, basically, each block contains a financial ledger, an account of who traded what, and how much, to whom, and when. And no one can hack into it and change it to make themselves richer or someone else poorer because there are all the protections of the other blocks in the chain that will render the rest of the chain useless if one block gets tampered with. Now, that's the gist of it. There's some level of probabilities and stuff, but you can go read the white paper if you want the perfectly accurate version. Again, that's available on the internet. So how did it get started? This Satoshi Nakamoto dude set up the very first block, essentially starting the Bitcoin blockchain. If we're talking about adding more bills, more dollars into circulation, the Fed, Federal Exchange, can print more dollars. The Fed can tell the mints to print more dollar bills, and then they can put them out into circulation, or they can exchange dollar bills, print new ones and take out old ones. They can take out too many. That's their way of managing the currency and the economy. We talked about it, I think, in the first episode. For Bitcoin, we don't have a Fed. It's unregulated. It's not set up by a governmental body. It's online. And so for Bitcoin, instead of printing money, you have people out there that are mining money. Now, they use the term mining, the first Bitcoins. At the beginning, people were using their computers to solve complex math problems in order to mine new Bitcoin, discover new Bitcoin. And they were mostly doing it just for the fun of it, just kind of novelty. At its inception, Bitcoin had absolutely no inherent value. The Bitcoins that these early miners received were kind of set up as a reward for verifying the validity and accuracy of Bitcoin transactions. It was, in essence, a peer review process that paid out with equity in the currency, which at the time was worthless, as is equity in any startup before it starts to earn revenue. The first real-world transaction using Bitcoin took place in May 2010, nearly a year and a half later. A Florida man agreed to exchange two $25 pizzas for 10,000 Bitcoin. Now, you're thinking to yourself, okay, uh, I don't know what that means, right? Like, what value are these 10,000 Bitcoin? Well, back then, 10,000 Bitcoin had a value of $25 because somebody decided to exchange pizzas for it. 
So that's what they did. It was $25 worth of pizza. Said, here, I'll give you 10,000 Bitcoin instead. And someone's like, yeah, fuck it. I'll take it. Fine. Today, 10,000 Bitcoin would be valued at just under $230 million, which is nearly 10 million times that original exchange price. So the person who got pizzas and gave away Bitcoin is probably wishing they would have just starved that night. Just saying. Shortly after Bitcoin started trading for real world money, other cryptocurrencies began to pop up. Today, there are more than 10,000 cryptocurrencies based on blockchain technology that are out there, most of which have no chance of practical use or mainstream adoption. One that popped up the most in my research was a cryptocurrency called Ether. Its blockchain is called Ethereum or Ethereum or something like that. A couple others with names that I've recognized before I started digging for this episode are Litecoin and Dogecoin. Now, Dogecoin always makes me laugh, and I'll tell you why. So I think whoever set that up must be from like Venice or like Venetian history or like Italian history because the Doge is basically the king or like the ruler or the feudal lord. His name was the Doge, um, and that's who presided over Venice in the days of the Italian city-states. So Dogecoin is funny to me because it's like the Italian ruler, the Venetian ruler. But I also kind of have to wonder why they didn't go with something associated with the Medici in Florence, you know, a Florentine, maybe make a Florin, a bit Florin or something like that, because Florence is where all of the bankers were, like the Medici were the amazing bankers. So instead of doing like the Dogecoin, they should have done like the Medici coin or something or just Medici's. I don't know. (laughs) Anyway, that was my thought. Random thought. We'll keep going with the podcast because I need to just stop talking to myself. Total nonsense. Okay. Today, there are more options than just cryptocurrency that use the blockchain technology. There are theoretical applications that have been developed. We've obviously talked about currency and, you know, by easy stretch of the imagination, they could also be talking about banking and finance you know, just stretching that concept a little bit further. But then there's completely unrelated ideas that they had for the use of this blockchain technology. And that includes things like healthcare, your health records, property records, smart contracts, supply chain tracking. So like for those of you who are in supply chain, like knowing not only where a resource came from, like which parts of the manufacturing it went through, I used to have to keep up with pipes, so we had to know like heat numbers that it was working with, which is like what batch of steel was used to roll that particular piece of pipe and which mill it went to and where it came from and what truck it got on and then when it got unloaded and everything like that. So all the little pieces that go along with creating a final product had to be kept track of. And we had like all these material like documents that we had to keep track of all of these little things that were associated with them. So that's how they know, like if you have a recall on something, you'll know kind of which piece, which items need to be recalled because you know where in the supply chain something went wrong. Tracking supply chain could be a use for this blockchain technology. Another use was taxes, which I thought was really interesting. And then even voting, which I thought was pretty kind of cool if you think about it, because if it is not corruptible, then you would get rid of voter fraud concerns, right? 
one of the newest crazes in the blockchain technology are NFTs. And you may have heard of those, especially if you're like poking around on like social media. I've seen a lot of memes about NFTs. NFT stands for non-fungible token. So think of like fungi, like F-U-N-G-I, and then B-L-E, and that's fungible. I don't think it's fungible. <laughs> that would be such a weird word. Still kind of a weird word. But anyway, so what the fuck is that supposed to mean? Okay, if you invest in Bitcoin, each Bitcoin can be exchanged for another Bitcoin. And it doesn't really matter which particular Bitcoin you have. They're all of equal value. The same thing would be the case if I gave you a $20 bill and you gave me a $20 bill, we just exchanged $20, we both have the same value, it doesn't really matter, it's all the same. That's considered a fungible token. It's an exchangeable token. It's all the same value. It's all similar. They all have similar properties, something like that. So a non-fungible token means it can't be exchanged for anything else because there's nothing that's the same. So that would be kind of like the modern day computer-based equivalent of trading baseball cards. Oh, this one's in mint condition. Comic books. Oh, I've got the first edition where the Punisher appears and still in its like plastic wrap or something like that. Pokemon cards, fucking pogs, if you remember those, whatever else stupid collectibles boys come up with. That's basically the idea behind an NFT. Each NFT is some random collectible that has its own unique characteristics and value because it's so special. So NFTs are basically like digital art. It could be a video, a JPEG image, music, like you could turn your YouTube video into an NFT. The point is, is that it would be sold for a good cost if somehow it brings value to the rest of the community. It's equated to a purely online art gallery where you can't come up with a forgery because the blockchain technology protects it from that. Now to pull up art heists for NFTs, it's no longer like a sexy Ocean 11, Ocean's 8 type schemes. It's behind the scenes computer hacking and it's failing because the blockchain is keeping it kind of locked up. Most NFTs are actually part of the Ethereum, Ethereum blockchain, which is the host blockchain for the Ether cryptocurrency I mentioned earlier. Other blockchains, though, have been working to include NFTs as well. So now that you know how the blockchain technology works, what cryptocurrency is, and how NFTs fit into the whole picture, if you felt comfy trying it out, how would you go about it? Well, according to The Motley Fool, a popular mainstream investing advice organization, cryptocurrency has become a mainstream asset class for investments. To invest in cryptocurrency, your best bet is to pick a brokerage firm to open an account with just like if you wanted to invest in stocks. But the brokerage firm will have to support trading in cryptocurrency. Some options that were mentioned in, in my research included Coinbase, Robinhood, Gemini, and SoFi. I think you can also go to crypto.com if you wanted to try to do something like that. That's the how to invest in cryptocurrency, but is it a good idea to invest in cryptocurrency? And like, which one should you pick? Now, if you hate when I've told you over the course of the season to do your research on things like even just your medical insurance plan, because ugh, Kristen, that's so unhelpful. 
then I'm going to go ahead and say, stop thinking you can invest in crypto at all. A little harsh scratch. She has a right to know. Cryptocurrency is not like investing in stocks, okay? Stocks are looking at a tangible company performance, boards, executives, major investors, brands, products, and you get to decide what you want to invest in based on all of those things that you know about that company. Mutual funds muddy the water even more because they offer packages of multiple stocks and bonds, right? So you don't even have, like you can see how a fund performs and you're investing in people who tend to make better investment decisions on the fly for specific companies or bonds. Cryptocurrency is based solely on the supply and demand of the currency itself. See also foreign exchange, foreign currency trading, FX, etc. Um, if you're looking at those kinds of trading, like foreign currency trading, that's the closest you're going to get to understanding cryptocurrency trading. You'll actually want to spend time diving into the white paper of that particular cryptocurrency in order to understand how new supply of the currency is mined. It may be that there is relatively little opportunity to find more supply, which means that prices will be close to their peak and you won't be able to make a whole lot of money off of trading them. Also, all of this is based on completely intangible things. You will never be able to hold any of your cryptocurrency in your hand. It all only exists in the computer code heard around the world. In order to pick a good bet, you would need to understand both the growth opportunities for the supply and the demand opportunities that might be out there. So that would be where if it has any real practicality, if it has any hope of catching on in mainstream, but it hasn't yet, that would be something where the demand has a lot of opportunity for growth, which could mean that you could make money off of it. Also, just for the sake of helping you girls out, white paper is just technical speak for uh, we're men who did sciencey things and we were told to write a a report about it by our stupider boss who failed upward, who isn't as smart as us and reminded us basically that no one is as smart as us. So uh, we needed to capture our genius on paper so that other people could understand it later. So if you do all the due diligence, then yes, ma'am, please enjoy your amazing capital gains on crypto, but it is incredibly volatile. And remember what I said about men and investing compared to women? Women are better investors because we stick to it for the long haul. From what I can tell, cryptocurrency is about short-term trading, which requires a lot of speculation, which is my nice way of saying that you're fucking gambling, and I'm not a huge fan of it. I read something earlier today that was talking about decision-making and risk-taking, and this would qualify for, you know, making a decision to take a risk, obviously. It was in the context of being the CEO of an organization and how to take a calculated risk for your organization in order for it to pay off. So the basic concept that was stated from these CEOs who have been successful is they would look at not only what the possibilities are for everything going right. Okay, so if you invest in this cryptocurrency and everything goes how you're speculating, everything goes amazing, sure, you can make a lot of gains. That's a really positive thing. But what if, you know, like what's the downside? What happens if it doesn't all go right? Is that something that you can still live with? So if it doesn't go all right, are you going to be comfortable with, you know, losing all of your money? Probably not. But is there the opportunity for somehow to create growth and additional wealth and gain even if everything goes wrong? 
if the answer to that is, yeah, it's still going to put me in a net positive place, even if everything goes wrong, then that kind of risk is worth taking. So you just have to make sure that you're willing to take the risk knowing that everything could, you know, if everything goes wrong, is that something you can still live with? Because it might be a better risk to take if you can still live with it. But it may be that you can't live with that right now. So it may not be the right investment for you at the moment. So you have to make your own decisions up. Um, That's a really great way to understand it is look at, you know, yes, if everything goes right, obviously, if you had 10,000 cryptocurrency that you traded, your 10,000 Bitcoin that you traded for two pizzas in 2010, today you would have $230 million worth of Bitcoin. Obviously, that's amazing. That would be like, yes, I want to do that. But what that person who said, yeah, here's two pizzas for this random 10,000, you know, cryptocurrency that no one's ever heard of and doesn't have any value, what that person had to weigh in was me giving these pizzas away. If these coins, these Bitcoins stay worthless, is it worth it to me to still just give these pizzas away? And it's like, eh, it's just 25 bucks. I don't care. You know, like that's probably how the guy that was the pizza dude said, sure, fine, I'll take your Bitcoin. (laughs) That's chill, you know? So that's kind of where you need to think about it. Is it is it a $25 couple of pizzas that you're like, eh, I'm fine. I'm going to be slightly less fat for not eating these. And I have these random digital coins that <laughs> have no inherent value to anybody or most people haven't heard of, you know, like whatever. Sure, I'll do it. So just make sure to sit around And if you do all of the research, understanding, you know, the white papers of the coins that you choose, don't just pick coins because they're popular. Don't just pick coins because other people are doing it. You need to take a look and do the research yourself. And full disclosure, I don't have any cryptocurrency. I don't have any NFTs. I've got none of that stuff. So I have not done any investing in this. I do not have experience with it. The information I'm giving you, I had to heavily research because I did not know it. Make sure you do your due diligence. And you, as a most amazing, capable, well-researched adult woman, can decide for yourself if that risk is worth taking. Let's be real. The greater the risk, the greater the possibility of reward. If the risk of it was not enough to deter you, then let me also make you aware of the darker side of cryptocurrency. Now, as I mentioned last episode, most of the scams that are out there target men and their manly pursuits, like crypto investments. Men tend to be looking for a quick fix, get rich quick scheme from what I've encountered. So this is the kind of shit that would really tempt them. Now, you girls are now too woke for falling for MLMs, obviously. And pyramid schemes and Ponzi schemes will miss you mostly because of misogyny. So crypto is a bro area still. So there are a lot of scams here of epic proportions that if you are going to try to brave through this whole crypto world, you're gonna need to navigate your way around those scams. Now, first and foremost, a bunch of sexy dudes started DMing me as soon as I started hashtagging money on my Instagram accounts when I started this podcast. Turns out, They just wanted to get me to invest in crypto. Now, 
to quote a favorite movie of mine, the men who resent my success won't give me the time of day. And the men who respect my success won't give me the time of night. So what goes down in the DMs is strictly men trying to get something from you that they know they're not entitled to. And I mean that in every way possible. I said what I said. If it reads like a Nigerian prince trying to send you all his money, fantastical returns for next to no work on your part or something similar, it's a scam. If you're ever questioning that, you can literally email me because I'm the only one that runs the show at lte.avo.toast at gmail.com. Oh, and as with any other random email, don't click links from people you don't know in DMs or emails or anywhere. And even be cautious about clicking links from people you do know that you haven't talked to in a while. And stick to reputable crypto brokers. You should also be aware due to its deregulation from governmentally backed fiat currencies and institutions, cryptocurrency is also heavily used for illegal activities. In some ways, by participating in the same currency exchange system as drug lords, sex traffickers, and other unsavory activities, you can be unwittingly participating in activity that could aid and abet them albeit from a once, twice, three times removed sort of vantage point. So just something else to be aware of before jumping on the crypto bandwagon. That's one of those things where your own morality and ethics will also need to inform your comfort level to participating. Whatever you decide to do with cryptocurrency, remember to first and foremost, stay safe, ladies. As I touched on at the beginning of this episode, this is our very last episode of season one. And I wish you girls were here to pop open some bubbly with me to celebrate. I need a wrap party. The timing could not be more perfect. It's the end of my school quarter and I'm taking off several weeks for a much needed passport stamp sort of vacay slash early graduation present to myself. We will pick back up in a few months from my last quarter in my master's program with the kickoff of season two. If you're not already, please follow the show on Facebook and Instagram so you can get real-time updates for the exact schedule. Thank you all for gritting your teeth and working through the kinks with me this season. I'm so excited to continue this journey with you when I return stateside. But until next season, ladies, may your mimosas and your bank accounts always be bottomless. Cheers. This has been Let Them Eat Avocado Toast, brought to you by Camex LLC. Any questions, comments, concerns, or requests for consultation should be directed to our email at lte.avo.toast at gmail.com. All sources used for this podcast are available upon request. All opinions expressed in this podcast are the express opinions of the host and do not represent the opinions of Camex LLC. All music used is stock music from GarageBand by Apple. Kristen Atherton and Camex LLC remind you to please drink responsibly.